0: I've titled my sermon this morning, How to Pray for Forgiveness. And some of, you, some of you may think, oh, well, that's a no-brainer. We know that, so we can all go home now. It's not quite like that. I think oftentimes we get this idea of God forgiving us for our sins wrong. We don't understand the concept. We don't know really how to go about it. And we miss the mark. It's not God's fault, but there's nothing wrong with the Scripture. We have maybe been blinded, or we've been been distracted, and so we miss it. Um, I would just like for us to imagine just for a moment, just imagine just for a moment, if we could go through the closets of our minds and just do inventory, don't have to do it now necessarily, but I mean, just think about it for a moment. What would you find? I'm sure we could all think of things in our lives that were great experiences, wonderful experiences, and we would we would think about it with fondness and and joy. But then there are also those experiences which we would rather not deal with. Pain and hurt, whatever form that may have been. Whether it's what others did to us, things that happened to us, opportunities that were missed, or worse, things that we deliberately and intentionally did because we were not thinking right. You know, there are things in life, they just are. We cannot fix them. We cannot change them. And when others do that to us, it is bad, it's hurtful, and we need to forgive them. But when it's worse is when we've done it. We're the ones who are guilty. When we're the ones who are responsible. You see, when I do something wrong to my neighbor, I'm responsible Not just because I did wrong to my neighbor. I'm responsible to my neighbor to fix it and to God to confess, repent, and ask forgiveness. You see, when sin happens, sometimes you can fix it. You know that. For instance, let's say I steal something from my neighbor. I can take that object that I stole and bring it back. I fixed it. The relationship may not be repaired, but I fixed the situation. But not all things can be fixed. Let's say, for instance, I kill my neighbor, God forbid, but let's say I had done that. I can't fix that. That's gone. That's done. That person lost their life due to my action, so I'll never get it give it back. I can't. I'm I'll serve prison for life, but that's it. There's nothing that can be done. I can say sorry, can you forgive me to their loved ones? They may say we forgive you, but it's over is there's a finality to some of our actions that we cannot trace back and that we cannot fix. And then, of course, from the stealing money to bringing it back and killing my neighbor, there's a whole infinite variety of shortcomings and sins and actions in between that we commit. One of our problems in the whole concept of of praying for forgiveness is we take sin too lightly sometimes. The temptation is to trivialize it, make it less than the Bible does. And we must realize God never trivialized sin. He never minimized or watered it down. I'm reminded sometimes of little children. We've had children. They're grown now. Now we have grandchildren. We see it in them. They will do something blatantly against mom and dad's decision or commands. You can't do this, whatever. And so they'll try it anyway and try to hide in broad daylight what the little one did. Like, come on. And the parent hopes the child will see the seriousness of obedience. The question one ask do we see our sins the way God sees them, or do we put a different perspective on them? The reason for that is because Jesus came to pay for them. So that should not worry us. All sins are paid at the cross. The debt is paid. It's completely paid. Nobody will go to hell because of the sins they committed but because of what they did with the sins they committed. Did they repent? Did they confess? Did they ask forgiveness? The thief on the cross was a murderer. He received salvation at the last minute. So when we meet God, will that slate have been cleared? Will that slate still stand against me? Or will that slate have been cleared? Let's let's ponder that for a moment. I want to draw our minds toward a teaching in the Bible that gives us a picture of what we need to stand before God as forgiven and holy, what the steps are to that. How do we go about receiving forgiveness so we can stand justified and righteous and clean before a holy God, even though we are not that? We're we're not perfect. We are sinful, sin-prone, human beings, and we have to ask for grace all the time. We've all done wrong. Nobody here can say, well, I was okay, I was good. We cannot work our way out of our predicaments. It's impossible. We cannot even fix much of the stuff that we do wrong. We can't fix the past. But oh, how we would love to try, or if it was only possible. And that has happened, too, where someone will say, if I only could, and then you go back and you can't. So our only hope is what Jesus has done for us and repenting of our sin, asking forgiveness. And asking for forgiveness is not optional if we want to spend eternity with God. That's not optional. The truth of the matter is we are an impossible situation by ourselves. Only by the grace of God do we come out of this and God makes us holy through his son Jesus Christ We receive eternal salvation. We can walk in fellowship and harmony with him. There's a, man, there's a story of a man in the Bible I want to talk about this morning. To me, it's a very fascinating story. I never get tired of reading about the story. And you know this man's name is David. We all know him as the harp player, the giant slayer, and, and that kind of stuff. Cool. He did that. But he wasn't always nice. In fact, King David did some really awful stuff. One day, the, the story is told in the Bible that David committed adultery with the man's wife. His name was Uriah, and the wife's name was Bathsheba, and he, um, he did some really sinful stuff, and God confronted him. The story goes in, in, uh, in the book of Samuel that uh, one day David's on the roof of his house. He sees a woman having a bath a little bit farther away from his house, a few neighbors over, maybe. I don't know how far. He lusted after her, sent someone to find out who she was. He gets noticed that that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, now, Uriah was off in the war fighting, uh, fighting in the war of one of David's generals was off in the military campaign. So he was not at home. So David sends for her. She comes to the king's palace. He commits adultery with her. And that's that. But then sometime later, she sends notice to David she's pregnant. So how are you going to deal with that? Well, King David worked fast. He wanted to cover his sin. So he quickly sent notice to the front lines where Uriah was fighting. He sends Uriah come home. Uriah comes home. And David wants him to go to his house to spend time with his wife. You know why. He refuses. Had he gotten word? We don't know. But God was at work. David was hoping Uriah would go home, and when the baby was born, it would be Uriah's baby. That's what he was hoping for. Well, God had other plans. He was going to expose David's sin and make it public. So David invites Uriah to the palace, sets wine before him and wants to get him drunk, so then he would go home and spend time with his wife. He still won't go. So David figures, okay, this is not working. So David figures that he's going to have to get rid of Uriah. So he writes a letter and sends it to Joab, the army, of the, com- the army commander, the general of the army, who's at the wards, who's fighting, says, okay, Uriah the soldier is going to come back. He seals the letter so Uriah can't read it. And I want you to put Uriah at the place where the fighting is most severe and dangerous. Retreat from him a little bit. Let him die in battle. And that was the, in- the instructions for, for Joab, the general. Joab should have never done that, but he did. So David has a plan to kill Uriah, and worst of all, it succeeded. Uriah was put in the most dangerous place of the fight, and sure enough, he was killed. News travels back to home to the palace. Uriah is now dead. Bathsheba hears her husband has died in battle. She goes into mourning. After the time of mourning is over, David takes her as his wife. It says in the Bible that the thing that David did, had done, displeased the Lord. And it was only a matter of time now before God would get the wheels in motion to expose his sin. We don't know how much time went by, but we do know the baby was born when God exposed this. So God sent word to Nathan the prophet to go and talk to David. So Nathan the prophet, I wouldn't want to be in his shoes, but anyway. So Nathan, he goes to David and tells David a story and says, David, there were two There were two farmers. One was a very poor farmer, he had had one little lamb, it's all he owned, and that little lamb was precious to him, treated like one of his family, ate at his table. And he, it was a very special little lamb. Neighbor over there, he was a rich farmer, had flocks and herds, and, and he, had, he had plenty. One day a visitor comes to the rich neighbor, to the rich farmer, and this rich farmer comes over and takes the poor man's little sheep and has barbecue for his friend. David's furious. He's mad. He says, that man deserves to die, and he has to pay back four times what he took. And rightly so. But let me just stop here for a second, interject. Isn't it always easier to look at somebody else's faults instead of our own? Isn't somebody's sin always bigger than mine? Yes, but, but I only, and he did. And so we justify, rationalize, water down our own shortcomings, our own sins, but somebody else's, they glare and they're bright, and so we emphasize them. So Nathan has told David the story. David says, that man deserves to die, and he's going to pay back four times. And then the bomb drops. 2 Samuel 12, verse 7, we'll start reading there. David said, Nathan said to David, you are the man. The hammer fell. Then Nathan goes on. Let's keep reading. It says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king of Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would, have added, I would add to you as much more. You know what God is doing? He says, look what I've done for you. Look how wealthy you've become. Look how I've blessed you. Verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never, shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. That's a life sentence. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. That's bad. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. You did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Maybe a few of you here this morning would say, why do you have to read that story? It is important for us to have the backdrop and the understanding of this To understand Psalm 51, which we'll read in a few minutes. What we have been forgiven must be seen as evil, as sin, in order for it to have its effect on our lives. The beauty of God's grace and patience, his love and generosity, shines through against the backdrop of such evil, horrific sin. It is... The mind cannot really fathom this. There's so much darkness and yet such beauty that God shines onto the situation. Was this beautiful? No, the story was not beautiful. But God is going to deal with David in a very strange way. And literally, I would encourage you, read 2 Samuel, read the stories, and literally it did happen. Not just that he was a man of war, he had to continue fighting wars, but his own household. His own household, enmity rose against him. And it did happen publicly before all Israel, just like it was written. You find it. We must remember, this world is a very broken, damaged place. But God's not worried. He's not scratching. He has ways. If only we humble ourselves, if only we repent, if only we ask for forgiveness. But the beauty of it comes in the next verse, verse 13. It says... David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Think about that phrase. I have sinned. The most effective, traction getting, powerful words any human being can utter. I have sinned, he says. The focus is on himself in relation to the deed. No blaming, no minimizing, no projecting, just I. I'm responsible. Have. Action. He has committed it. He's carried He's executed this deed. He has done it. Describing what happened. I have. Did. Sinned. Adultery. Punishable by death, according to Leviticus. I have sinned. Brought shame to God. I'm responsible. He has sinned. These words, I have sinned, are also the hardest words for a person to say. But they are the starting point. And that's where we all have to start. For, this, for David, this was the moment of truth. And how he would respond here, how he did respond here, was setting the stage for his future journey of life. And yes, all the consequences did follow. He wasn't killed for it, but all the consequences did follow that Nathan the prophet said would happen. But what if David had trivialized it? What if David had brushed it off? He had minimized it, watered it down. It would have impacted not just his life, but the whole country would have suffered. You see, the problem is not so much that we have sinned. That's what we do because we're sinners. The problem comes when we refuse to repent. You and I cannot help that our parents were sinners and that they gave birth to sinners. We cannot help that. But what we can help is what do we do with the, with the uh, offer that God's offering us? rejecting God's offer for us to repent and receive forgiveness, that's the greatest insult we can give to God. But David did the right thing. He realized his sinful actions for what they were. He called his actions by name. He called it sin. And at that point, now Nathan will go to the second point. He says, and Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. Beauty. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you've utterly scorned the Lord, and the child who is born to you shall die. It just stops for me here. Why did that baby have to die? I don't understand. I don't know. My ways are God's ways are not my ways, and I don't understand the total picture of God. But what I do know is God loved that child. God loved David. He loved everybody in the scene, but judgment had to fall. Punishment had to be given for the sin. Even though God forgave him, the consequences followed. God intended to use David's sin for a great purpose in terms of showing the power and the grace and the love of God. That's what God wanted with it. But it wasn't going to be over just that easy. It would be a very long and painful experience in David's life. And the consequences of his actions would go with him for the rest of his life. But you know what? He still was a man of God. He allowed God to use him, and a beautiful picture emerged. What is so fascinating and so remarkable is David was a writer, and he wrote the story down. That's the beauty of it. Let's turn to Psalm 51. We'll look at it on the slide here. Psalm 51, beginning verse 1. To the choir master, Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So David wrote this and he had confronted he had been confronted he owned and took responsibility and now the prayer begins How does one pray for forgiveness Let's read it Have mercy on me O God according to your steadfast love according to your abundant mercy blot out my transgressions Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Let's pause. I put up another slide with these. uh, Let's look at the next one here. I just kind of colored it in a little bit to bring attention to, pull this apart a little bit. What it says is, According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, that's the point of reference that David wants God to use in terms of forgiving him. Not on his, oh, I was a good man all these years; I did all these good deeds. Remember, Lord, don't don't doesn't that count? He said, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, forgive me. And then he says, wash me, cleanse me, blot out, wash me, cleanse me, and he wants he wants him to be. To be clean. He wants himself to be clean. He says, I know my transgressions, my sins ever before me. Complete and total ownership. He's pleading, begging. He's admitting to God. He's pointing out to God the standards to use. Please don't use any. Use your own standards. He's trusting God. Not some modern day idea. Oh, yeah, you made some poor choices. Or, you know what? No, it's just a poor choice. No, no, it's sin. He owned it. Deep, powerful. When I read stuff like this, my mind just stops. But let's continue on. He's not finished. Verse 5, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Nothing to hold up. Nothing in defense. Complete surrender. I'm a sinful being from before birth. I'm a sinful being now. Please help. He goes to the bottom. That's humility. He gives total recognition to God. Voicing his thoughts to God. He, he trusts in God. and he, God's going to teach him wisdom. He's again going back to where he once was. Notice his, his longings, verse 8, he says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my inic- all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The intenseness, the agony, the longing, the desire that he expresses here, is just incredible. He wants God to restore him. Not to cast him away. Not take his Holy Spirit from him. He's asking for restoration. Then he says in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I will give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering, the sacrifices of God, or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God. You will not despise. He knows. He wanted to get back where he'd been. He's aware of doing good things. doesn't balance out the bad. Some people have this idea, well, if you we do more good than bad then some of that will work out. It's not true. You can't go to court and say, you know what, Um, well, I know I did wrong here, but look, I did 10 good things here. Doesn't that cancel out the bad? Don't I have some credit? No. It doesn't work that way. You can't earn salvation. You can't earn relationship. It's given. Then he says we're 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. David's a broken man. I remember re- um, thinking about this back in was nineteen eighty. 82, I want to say, 1982 it was, I was 17 years old, I was walking outside early one morning before sunrise, the dawn, as I, often, as I sometimes did, and I've always been an early rise, and it was just, just me outside in the cool morning air, and it just gripped me, this whole thing. And I was thinking about my relationship with God, and this just, verse just popped into my mind back then, many years ago. You see, it's always stuck with me. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, or God, you will not despise. And if a man like David, having done what David did, received grace, there's hope for everybody. Everybody is within reach. Everybody. We all can receive forgiveness, and we pray that with a broken heart, with humility, and owning our sin. That's where we have to come to it's when we get there, when we do that, at that point, we are again ready to be used by God. Let's read verse 18 and 19. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You know what's happening here? David was a king of Israel. When leaders sin. It affects more than just the leader. The whole nation's implicated. When pastors sin, it affects the church. When we sin, when family members, family, fathers sin, it affects the family. We can't, we don't sin in isolation, independence. When we sin, it affects everybody. And he's still the king. He knew that. He was aware of that. And he wanted his nation to be blessed. The story of David's journey to praying for forgiveness is a good story for us to learn from and align our hearts with and turn to God. I want to wrap this up. Let's notice what's not here. There's no self-righteousness, no self-justification. There's no I only and I just, none of that stuff. There is complete and full responsibility, full ownership. We read in Scripture, and we just had that in a Good Friday sermon, that Jesus died for the sins of the world, and that's true. And that applies to each one of us. But we know something? Jesus died, and he paid for the sins of the world. But that payment only has effect on those who have a broken heart, a contrite heart, who deny their, themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. That payment on the cross only works <clears throat> for people who receive it. <clears throat> it's a sad situation, When people treat the discipline of God, the driving of God's spirit as lightly and as if it doesn't really matter. Today, you and I can still pray for forgiveness. That's something we're invited to do, encouraged and even commanded to do. And without the forgiveness of sins, the payment of Jesus on the cross, there is no salvation. It's God's grace and his gift of salvation. That's our only way, our only hope and our only avenue. God's grace has been, is being poured out in the world still today. If we want to receive it, it's ours for the taking when we follow Jesus. The most difficult part of the human heart is to become broken and contrite and to surrender. David experienced it full force. He had to own his sin. He took responsibility for his sin. He repented of his sin. He confessed it and he turned to God and he received mercy. Our world needs that message today. We need that message today. We can receive it we can live it out. May God grant us his grace to do it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord, for this morning, for the scripture passage, in the book of Psalms, the book of Second Samuel, how you work in the lives of those who are your saints, but at the same time get off track. You deal hard and severely, yet with such grace and such mercy and such forgiveness. That's the beauty of it. Lord, help us to recognize it, help us to apply it to our lives, Help us to live accordingly in Jesus' name.